Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Tell Mr. Trump you want to meet him. I love you, Trump! <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody called me the N-word. It's microaggressions. He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not Blacks, no one but his own kind, the rich. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a, I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man under the hair. I'm Jacob Weisberg. You know the old joke about real estate developers. It's the 99% of them that give the rest a bad name. Well, in this respect, Donald Trump is not among the 1%. But he is first and foremost a real estate developer. And today on the show, I'm going to talk to the guy who has been tracking Trump's real estate and business practices longer and more closely than anyone else. But first, let's check his latest tweets. The rules did change in Colorado shortly after I entered the race in June because the polls and their bosses knew I would win with the voters. This is happening all over the country. Great people being disenfranchised by politicians. Repub Party is in trouble. Big protest march in Colorado on Friday afternoon. Don't let the bosses take your vote. Why does the liberal media think that Bill O'Reilly at O'Reilly Factor is a complete and total vulgarian? I don't think so. My guest today is Wayne Barrett, one of New York's great investigative journalists and crusading reporters. Uh, Wayne started covering Donald Trump for the Village Voice in the 1970s, and I think it's fair to say he knows more about his business dealings going back to that period than anybody else in the press. He wrote a book called Trump, the Deals and the Downfall in 1991, which I can genuinely say is a collector's item. I think copies are going for $100 or more on, on Amazon. Wayne, welcome to Trumpcast. Glad to be here and glad to talk about Donald. So tell me, Wayne, about how Donald Trump got started as a real estate developer in New York. I mean, his self-image, of course, is he did it on his own. He was a kind of freebooting capitalist. But what's the, what's the real story? Yeah, you know, I was sort of disappointed in Marco Rubio taking the, the shot at him in the, during the debates a couple of months ago as if he had inherited all this wealth. You know, his father didn't die till. 
many years after Donald was a star. I think it was 99 or 98 that his father died. So he did get an inheritance then, but by then he'd already had a rise and a fall. The secret to Donald's success was his father, but not an inheritance. His father, if you looked at every one, as I do in the book, if you look at every one of the first bunch of deals from the Grand Hyatt to the West Side Yards, which he didn't develop at that time, but to even Trump Plaza down in Atlantic City and certainly Trump Tower, every time he had to get a loan, Donald, young Donald, to actually do anything, Fred had to come in and sign the loan documents. In fact, I tell the tale where they go down to sign the leasehold to acquire the property underneath what ultimately became Trump Plaza in Atlantic City. And they're signing all these documents, and Fred is there. They come in a limo together. Fred has to sign all the documents. I mean, nobody's going to do these gigantic financial deals with Donald in the, in, in the 70s and very early 80s. He's a kid. He doesn't really have any resources of his own. I had his tax returns in the 70s at the time of the book, and he had a very scant income and no real assets. In fact, the first office that he opened on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, Fred's company paid the rent. So it was Fred who was really the financial key to all of his early deals and Fred's political relationships with Abe Beam and Hugh Carey, the mayor and the governor at the time, were absolutely indispensable uh, to arranging the government support, the public benefits, the tax abatements. Those political relationships, Donald milked them to the T, and even getting the options themselves on the Grand Hyatt Hotel and on the West Side Yards, those options... His first two big deals were those deals, and uh, those were properties owned by a bankrupt railroad, Penn Central, in Philadelphia, and Fred was absolutely key to those options. They would not have granted those options to a 30-year-old who'd never developed anything in his life. Wayne, let's talk about the political connections, though. I mean, in a city like New York, a real estate developer uses political connections. I mean, isn't that just the law of the land? I mean, that's I, I don't imagine much gets built in New York at scale without political connections. Well, these were exceptional political connections. It was an exceptional relationship. Uh, Fred went back with the Brooklyn Democratic machine, which, as you know, was the most powerful machine Democratic machine in the state and maybe even in the country through many of Fred's years. And um, Fred came right out of the Madison Club. Mayor Beam came out of that same small club. The Speaker of the Assembly, who was at times the minority leader of the Assembly, Stanley Steingut, came out of the same club. So he was he was especially gifted with political connections at this time when Donald was was first emerging, and so they did things for him. I mean, the the tax abatement program for the Commodore, which became the Hyatt, was developed expressly for Donald. No such program existed at a city or state level. This was a pioneering program where the city and state would make these kinds of investments in an economic development project. And so the, the whole concept of it originated for the purposes of Donald doing 
the renovation and construction of the Hyatt Hotel. So these were very special relationships. I, I quote Ned Eichler, who was the top executive of the company that was selling the assets of the bankrupt railroad. And Ned Eichler makes a trip from Philadelphia to New York and comes up to see, before they decide to grant the option to Donald, he comes up to see whether or not Donald can deliver. And he meets with Donald and Fred, and they get in the limo, and they ride right over to City Hall, and Abe Beam is on the steps of City Hall to greet them and says anything he wants, he gets. Uh, Fred and Donald were state capitalists from the very beginning, and Fred was a very effective builder who built single-family homes, large developments like Trump Village. But both Fred and, and Donald ran into trouble, didn't they, building the subsidized housing around fair housing and basically whether they were, were willing to rent apartments to African Americans. Talk a little about that. Yeah, well, that was a lawsuit brought by the Justice Department, I think, in 1973. And I wrote about that in the 70s at The Voice. And I, it was a really crushing lawsuit in terms of the evidence and the pattern of of racial rentals and racial discrimination. It was, they had a color-coded system for all of the Fred Trump properties. And Donald was actually the manager of these properties where, you know, where the staff was instructed to put black applicants in a certain color folder, I think it was green, and Latino applicants in another colored folder. And those folders were never opened. You know, there were a couple of buildings of, on the entire Fred Empire that had some minorities in it, but the great lion's share of the properties that had rental apartments in it were almost entirely white. And um, in the course of the lawsuit, the Justice Department brought the case, and the Trumps hired Roy Cohn, the nefarious fixer and politically wired lawyer in New York who since died. They hired Roy Cohn to represent him on this case. That was the first litigation that Roy and Donald ever really got involved with. And Donald submitted an affidavit stating that he didn't have anything to do with the rental of the apartments. But as I reported at the time, he simultaneously filed an application to be a real estate broker and get a license with the Secretary of State. And in that application, also a sworn statement, he said that he was in charge of the rental of all of the apartments. Well, what you just said with the uh, with about the color-coded folders, it sounds like one of Trump's first jobs was making sure these of uh, these apartment buildings of his dad's stayed segregated. Absolutely. Now he, when he made public comments about it, he just talked about it in terms of welfare recipients. We're trying to keep welfare recipients out of the buildings, but that's the way he thought of black and brown people at the time. Uh, somebody who was a welfare recipient would have a hard time affording an apartment in his building, so it was an incongruous argument. And ultimately, they signed a consent decree, which had to be renewed again in 78, because they didn't comply with the consent decree that they, that they originally signed. But Donald's public response was, we still don't have to rent to welfare recipients. Well, 
they weren't renting the real fair recipients anyway. So when you f- first wrote the, the village, Long Village Voice pieces, the series about Trump, it sounds like you really got the treatment from him. He said, if I don't like the piece, I'm going to sue you, but don't mind that. We're great friends. And he kind of offered to find you an apartment. I mean, what did you, what was that experience like back in the 70s? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny that when you look at my book, years written years later, I, I recount example after example of where he did, in fact, get an apartment, not for a reporter, but for somebody who was very important in an ongoing business deal. I I have example after example of that. So when I first meet him and talk with him in the 70s, and he's really a rookie and I'm a rookie, you know, we're we're almost the same age. I don't think it was the first meeting, but by the second meeting or so on, we had three or four long meetings. I taped maybe 10 or 12 hours of conversations with the kid developer. And um, so at any rate, when I'm talking to him, I never told him where I lived, but I lived in Brownsville, which was then the poorest section of the city. Now, in fact, I had lived there for many years and chose to live there. He couldn't understand that. But uh, he said to me, you don't have to live in Brownsville, Wayne. I've got plenty of apartments. And then at some other stage, I think in the same conversation, but it could have been another day when I was with him, he he never really threatened to sue me. He brought up the example of a reporter he had broken, which I think was totally manufactured because he had received very little coverage at that time. But he said, well, this reporter wrote something about me and I, you know, and I sued him and I broke him financially, you know, something like that. Uh, but he he was using some sort of an example as a threat, but it was a, definitely a carrot and stick approach. You know, it was a little bit funny to me. You, uh, you quote Trump saying, I won't make a deal just to make a profit. It has to have flair. And then you had a quote from another developer who said, Trump won't do a deal unless there's something extra, a kind of moral larceny in it. He's not satisfied with a profit. He has to take something more. Otherwise, there's no thrill. Talk, elaborate on that a little bit about Trump, you know, beyond the 70s as a as developer. Yeah, Jacob, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I I had forgotten about that quote, but I think... You know, he took such delight in the fact that um, there was larceny in every deal. Now, this is, keep in mind that the Grand Hyatt is his debut, okay? This is how he breaks through and does his first deal. And in the course of my reporting on the story, it was a chicken or egg approach. Was the city and state going to give him the tax abatement and all the other public benefits before he had the option, or did he have to have the option from Penn Central Railroad to get them? So I foil uh, freedom of information requests to the city and state. I'm looking at tons of documents, and I see that he had submitted to the city a copy of the option from uh, Penn Central on the Commodore Hotel, but that the option that was in the records of the city of New York only had his own signature on it, and no one had signed it uh, from Penn Central. And I thought this was very strange, and I asked a bunch of questions about it, and I wind up determining that, in fact, at the time that this document was presented to the city of New York, the option had not been granted. And they were waiting to see if he could get the tax abatements and the benefits before they signed the option. When I interviewed him about it, he was in 
denial about it. But then later in his own book, The Art of the Deal, he boasted about it. Nobody noticed until years later, until some reporters stumbled on the fact that I had submitted an unsigned option to the city. He boasts about it. So, yeah, a little larceny, even at his debut, there had to be a little larceny. He, I mean... Look at chapter after chapter in the book, and there's a little larceny in every deal. In fact, there's often a lot of larceny in <laughs> <at> every <laughs> so, deal. Yeah. D- despite the larceny, moral and otherwise, Wayne, and these kind of heads I win, tails you lose deals, where he's there's a bluff, he's not putting up money, he's using his political influence, he still managed to go essentially bankrupt by the time you wrote your book how did he how did he do it if every if every deal was sort of too good to check well you know the book documents the the devolution of the man really i mean he he himself was a detailed builder he inherited that from his father he learned it at his father's knee and as i report in the book when he built the grand hyatt he was on the job site every day looking at every detail by the time the late 80s roll around, when he's entertaining Marla every other minute, Marla Maples, who subsequently became his second wife, when he's in this completely glamorous, he's got all the casinos pumping, he's, you know, he's now the glamour boy that he remains even at this age. You know, he's still a glamour boy. And he was in the fast track at that point in the late 80s. You look at his personal life and you look at his business life and they're a mirror image of of each other because his business life just goes completely. He did good deals. The Trump Tower was a good deal. The Hyatt was a good deal. I'm talking about from his vantage point. It was a good deal. These were big money-making deals. And then by the late 80s, when he's he's on this fast track in his personal life and all the rest of it, he's breaking up with Ivana. You know, he's running around all the time. He starts doing one bad deal after the other, overpaying for the plaza in Midtown. The shuttle was an absolutely ridiculous deal. Taj Mahal was just a total joke of a deal. It was, I mean, one bad deal after another. So all of those skills that he seemed to show in the earliest phase of his career just went by the boards. And by the time the bankers are at his door, you know, he is so over leveraged. Uh, he now, he used to, in the early phase of his deals, he wouldn't do any personal guarantees. But in the late 80s, he did almost a billion dollars worth of personal guarantees. And so all these deals had started falling apart. The Taj fell, fell apart almost the minute it was opened. It's so funny that the Tea Party likes him because he's the f- prime example of, the, uh, of too big to fail. In those days, the banks just, they just took enormous losses they took away a lot of his assets, assets that many of them, the bankers didn't even want. And they, didn't, they, were, they were part and parcel of the problem because they didn't go to any prosecutors. As I lay out in the book, the financial statements that he was submitting to qualify for these loans were totally fraudulent. But the banks weren't going to blow the whistle. They were just trying to get out of this incredibly embarrassing situation. And, you know, he would meet with these bankers There would be... You know, 25 banks in the room, there were all kinds of stresses and strains within the banking community there that had a deal with him. But, you know, eventually they decided to let him stay alive and float. 
So when the the New York primary is on Tuesday, Trump is well ahead in the polls. He's probably going to win it. What would you say, based on all your experience covering Trump as a real estate developer and a businessman, to people who are thinking about voting for him? Well, uh, every day is a new day to him, so he doesn't even remember the days, I think, in which he was on the, the balls of his behind. You know, when everything blew up in his face, he has convinced himself of this great success story that he endlessly tells us about. But in fact, he's had a very troubled business career. He's done some smart things. He's done some dumb things. I mean, since the, the downfall that I wrote about him, and he communicated with my publisher, Harper Collins, he may have even talked to me at the time. I don't remember, but his big problem with the book, I mean, I have 25 mob associations in the book. That didn't bother him. What bothered him was the word downfall in the title. Wayne, just don't use the word downfall in the title, and I won't sue. He was talking about filing a suit. Now, obviously, Tim O'Brien, who was my research assistant on my book and subsequently wrote his own book about Donald Trump Nation, and Donald sued him. And the only thing Donald will sue about is that Tim said he wasn't worth what he claimed to be worth. And so they went through seven years of litigation that Tim won. You know, so he has all the emblems of great wealth. He appears to be a billionaire, but I don't think that's much of a measure of his business career. His business career has had its bright spots, no question about it, but it's also had extraordinarily downsides that um, should be a cause of concern to the American public if that's how we're judging whether or not he ought to be president. Wayne, thanks for joining me on Trumpcast. Great to talk to you. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. If you haven't already, why not head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review? Then hit subscribe while you're there. All of these things help other people discover the show. Plus, if you haven't read our negative reviews on iTunes, you're really missing out. Trumpcast is produced by Henry Malofsky and Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Special thanks to our voice of Donald Trump, John D. Domenico. Today I'll leave you with this clip from Fallon last night. Ted Cruz made his first Tonight Show appearance, so the Donald thought he would give Lion Ted a call to offer some advice. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. You know, I, I've got to run now. Wait, wait, look, I know you're about to be a guest on the Tonight Show. I've been on that show many times. <laughs> so I thought I'd help you out and do a little pre-interview. Well, well that's a very generous offer, Donald. I, I appreciate you being the bigger man. Oh, I'm the bigger man. With the bigger hands. And the bigger... You can't see me, but I'm pointing at my Trump Tower.